My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In today's Gospel from St. John, the Lord opens his heart to his uh, disciples, his apostles, and he, he gives them a real intimate look at his relation with God the Father. In other words, it's a, it's a kind of inside look of the mystery of the Blessed Trinity. It's from St. John. He said, I, I tell you most solemnly, Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does too. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he does himself. And he will show him even greater things than these works that will astonish you. And he goes on to describe the Son's relation with the Father. It bespeaks there in the words of Jesus really a very intimate relationship with God the Father, but also with the Holy Spirit, though he's not explicitly mentioned here, but the Holy Spirit makes that relationship of love possible. And clearly the Lord here speaks of the equality, but also the distinction between the roles of God the Father, God the Son. The two are equal. All the Son's power is the Father's power. And all the Son does, the Father does. But they are two distinct persons in the Blessed Trinity, which is why the Son does what he has seen the Father do. So he does it too. There's a unity of wills there. And uh, he says, he will show you, he will show him, that is the Father will show him, the Son, even greater things than these. What are these greater things, these greater works? Well, maybe a reference to other miracles that Jesus will work during his own lifetime, healing people and giving them sight and walking on water. For sure it could be that, but also to his authority to execute judgment because he will be the one to judge the world. But ultimately, the miracle, the greater thing, is that Jesus will rise. That is, the miracle of his own resurrection, which we are preparing now during Lent as we ask for more purification, as we, as we pray more, because we need to be prepared for that great miracle, the miracle of the resurrection. Because why do we prepare it? Is it just to be filled with wonder at the fact that Jesus had that power? Of course, he had the power to resurrect. Yes, and, and we are amazed, but the reason it's, it's so, it fills us with, with amazement and, and we have to real f- have faith in it is because it is the cause and the pledge of our own resurrection. 
It's like a, our passport. It's our passport to a supernatural life. These days you can't get into the U.S. if you don't have your passport. Not that getting into the U.S. is equivalent to supernatural life, but you can't get in there unless you have a passport. And our passport is the resurrection of Christ because he is human. He's a human being. He's human. He's a divine person, but that rose with a human nature. And so Christ, like his Father, in that sense has unlimited power to communicate life. Unlimited. Even like he can raise us up. And I, I was reading the other day about a famous work of art by Rembrandt. It's called uh, The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Tulp. It's a pretty creepy work from 1632. It shows this surgeon's guild in, I believe it's in Antwerp, maybe it's in Amsterdam, I don't remember, but it's, it's, um, it's, it shows these doctors looking at an anatomy lesson or a surgery performed by this famous um, surgeon at the time. His name was Nicholas Tulp. So this is from 1632, and it shows him there in front of a cadaver, and he's, he's showing the tendons in the arm, and he's got his fingers together, and with the other arm, he's kind of opening the, the tendons, moving them back and forth. And there's a cadaver right there, lying there. And all the doctors are huddled around. And we find out that that cadaver was actually uh, a man who had been caught the day before. He was a thief. He had tried to steal somebody's cloak. He was caught on the spot, and it was the cloak of a fairly wealthy person. And this was so outrageous that they decided right there he was he was tried, and the the sentence was hanging. So he was hanged. But just to make it even worse for him, they said, "Well, you will be hanged, and you will be used uh, for anatomy lessons of Dr. Tulp." And uh, and well, okay, well, you might say, well, who cares? I mean, if I'm used to, if I'm dead already, who cares? You know? But for them, it was a real punishment because they knew that those limbs and those you know, body parts would eventually be separated and he would not be buried in, in a place, but they'd be sort of separated everywhere, I don't know, formaldehyde or what have you. And uh, they knew, of course, at the resurrection of the dead, at that moment, when everybody rises out of their tombs, well, that guy, he's got to have his arm there, his whatever here, his, his leg over here, all over the place, so he ain't going to even rise. Right? That was the worst kind of punishment. They even get him at the resurrection. You know, so like it's, it's a bit of a weak understanding of what the resurrection is. You know? I mean, even if you're cremated, you'll still rise. But anyway, that was seen as a, as a form of a punishment. But even if we were to receive that punishment, we will still rise. And, uh, and for Jesus, he is doing that, working together with the Father, that there's equality of him and the Father. He's working together, and you know, one does not outshine the other. And, well, the Lord transmits these mysterious words about the eventual resurrection, about his equality with the Father, these these words about the Blessed Trinity that might be seem to us rather mysterious, but they're also, and they have to be like 
encouraging words in order to believe in Him, to be really united to Him, to have confidence in Him, because clearly He's not just a wise and brilliant uh, teacher. He's not simply the source of a brilliant uh, ideology. Because at that time there was a growing hostility against him, the opposition of the scribes, and maybe those who followed him didn't like that tension that these, these scribes and these Pharisees were beginning to, to, to provoke. There were people around Jesus might have been upset by all this, and perhaps were wondering if it was worthwhile to keep following him if we're going to have to suffer all this abuse. But he says these encouraging words. If you remain in my word, you will truly be my disciple. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And he's just talked about the truth, at least the beginnings of the truth, about the great mystery of the, of the Blessed Trinity, our, res our relationship to the Blessed Trinity, and our resurrection, our own resurrection based on His resurrection. The truth will set you free. To be set free implies that in some way, if you're set free, that means you're already somehow in a prison in some way, or that you are constrained, or that you're somehow limited. And the Lord wants to set us free. But from what? What do we have to be set free from? I mean, it's wonderful to, to think that you can actually be set free by the truth. The truth about God, the truth about our life, the truth about our purpose. The fact that we know the truth about our life, about our mission, our purpose, gives you kind of wings to fly high to the sun, to the face of God. Something about that is why he said the truth will set you free. Of course, among the leaders, they, these words of Jesus were, were met with great skepticism. They didn't know if he would really set them free. Not from his followers. The followers believed that. They were very encouraging words. But from the Jewish leaders, they didn't appreciate the implication that in some way they were prisoners if they didn't accept his, his teaching. So... So Jesus really narrows down the real source of lack of freedom, the real source of slavery. It doesn't have to do with politics. It doesn't have to do with personal prowess or intelligence. The real lack of freedom that we have to be set free from, he's suggesting is we have to be set free from sin. Sin is the chain that locks us down and keeps us away from our purpose, our meaning, our road to God, our resurrection. And that's why he confronts the leaders who want to kill him, telling them that they are hardened in their sin. Amen, amen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a, is a slave to sin, says in St. John. And we know that in our tradition, sin is a kind of a non-being. It's an illusion, if you will. To live in sin is, is to live stubbornly in an unreal world. 
where our, our mind gets kind of confused uh, and our will becomes disoriented. That's why we say that the father is the, the, rather the devil. We say that the devil is the father of lies. And all of us, in some way or another, have bought into that father of lies, or to one degree and others, because we are sinners, we have somehow bought into that lie. Because at the heart of the lie, we can see it in the Genesis account, is ultimately the deification of the ego. So we, you know, where we, in some way, become the center of the universe, not our, not God the Father or our Lord, but somehow we have a contorted understanding of ourselves and our role. We become kind of, well, egocentric. You know, our ego becomes central. My needs, my fears, my demands. You may have heard that famous quote from this famous uh, French philosopher, mathematician, inventor, theologian from the 17th century. His name was Blaise Pascal. Very famous, wrote some beautiful books. And uh, he has a powerful <coughs> comment on self-centeredness. He says, uh, man has two lives. One is his true self, his true life, and the other is the imaginary one. That, that he lives in his own opinion or in that of others. So it's the true life, or, and the other is the imaginary one. We work hard to embellish and conserve our imaginary being, and we neglect our true being. If we have some virtue or merit, we are careful to make it known in one, in one way or another, so as to attach these virtues to that imaginary existence. We would rather separate them from ourselves to join them to it. And we would willingly be cowards in order to acquire the reputation of being brave. Imaginary and real. Imagine so. We could have the imaginary, give the imaginary impression that we are, that we are brave when in fact we are, we are cowards. We want to have a reputation. Is it possible, Lord, that I really care much more about what others think than what you think about me? Maybe not explicitly. You know, if I were to ask you now, you'd say, oh, no, no, I care more what God thinks. I, I, I definitely, oh, no problem, I care. Yeah, okay, that's good, that's good. Good, you answered well. So maybe we don't do it consciously, but... We do have to learn humbly the art of putting the self in its place. We have to die to ourselves where it belongs. And we're all under the aegis of humility, under the service, at the service of others. And we are surrounded now by all kinds of things that, that can really weaken our tendency towards true humility. We're in a world of Instagram today, of scrolling through mindless feeds, Right, of beautiful ladies with makeup and, uh, and uh, that have been carefully filtered to look good. Their appearances, the 
apparently they can shrink their you know their their waist size <laughs> side size you know from a whatever a 35 to a 22 you know <laughs> and it looks normal it looks normal you know and uh, their appearance look much better sound much better than what they really are and we have to recognize that we too could be living in that fake universe there are a number of books that have been written lately about this the one I've read or started reading a little bit is Gene Twenge's book called The Narcissism Epidemic Oh my, it's a terrible, well, it's a good title, but it's like scary, you know, that there's an epidemic, you know, of narcissism all around us. You know? And what is narcissism? Well, narcissism is a, a kind of an inflated uh, view of self. Narcissists think that they are better than others in many areas, including social status, good looks, intelligence, creativity. They don't say it outright, but they kind of believe it. And she says this has affected teenagers, young adults. They hone in on Facebook. They are the celebrity newsmakers. And they have elevated this to an art form. How you can look good on Facebook. And she says it's what's making people depressed, lonely, and buried in piles of debt. Because... Because narcissists tend to be to lack truly emotional warmth, they lack this caring and loving relationship with other people. And uh, I mean, if there is an emotional relationship with others, it's maybe there, but it's very muted. You know, it's like on mute. It looks like it's going, but it's on mute. Like you can't really hear what's going on. And when it works, they feel this rush of esteem, this rush of pride. When it fails, they react with anger, with blame, and sometimes with absolute rage. Somebody has cut me off. Somebody has, has pointed something out about me. And that's why they say that narcissists are much less likely to forgive. And it explains, I suppose, why there's been, in the last few years, such a fall from religion, like the Catholic Church has lost many, you know, practicing Catholics, formerly practicing Catholics, because now they've joined another religion, which is narcissism. <laughs> Seems as though being a true narcissist is not really compatible with Catholicism, but there's still lots of them in the church. You know. There's the influence of other religions, or, or the Joel Olstein, this famous uh, prosperity gospel. And uh, this author gives us a lot of very attractive one-liners that he, that he gives that sound good or they sound interesting. And they have this quality of, you don't know if this is good or if it's bad. Right? Like you're there. You hear this and you, like he says, God didn't create you to be average. Okay. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Or then he says... Uh, you were made to excel. You were made to leave a mark on this generation. And you, know, you can hear the drum beats already going. You know, and and uh, one of his favorite movie lines is, uh, to win is to honor God. 
Okay, right? God wants you to be rich. How and why? You know, everyone can enjoy material and spiritual wealth in our abundant world. That's, that's the rule of the prosperity gospel. God has shown me that He doesn't want me to be a run-of-the-mill person. I mean, it sounds well. When you hear that, that that sounds pretty obviously narcissistic. But a lot of them have this uh, tension about them because they do. There's an element of like a twinge of truth about it. But it does clearly lead to vanity, and also one of the things it leads to is it's just a spending explosion of you know buying nice clothes and makeup and materialism and and just an intense focus on uniqueness. Entitlement. When you boost up, as Bishop Barron says, the, the puny eye, the center of the, you make that the center of the cosmos, the, the tie that binds all things together, all that connects us is, is just withers away and is lost. And now, as a result, uh, when we don't learn to die to ourselves, uh, you know, the, the center reality becomes rivalry, competition, mistrust. So we ask, Lord, you know, that we really learn truly how you want us to die to ourselves. To live not for ourselves, but to die. To live for others. To give of ourselves. How can I do that? Because to say to die to myself, it sounds... It's like outside of the realm of our experience that we, you know, modern-day narcissists would revolt at that. They would think of it as a form of violence. But, you know, we do all have the experience of being a bit too focused on ourselves and sometimes on our needs and often just the center of gravity in our thoughts and our imagination. It can happen, can be mainly on the impression we've made or we're embarrassed because somebody thought, ill of us or if we weren't good enough in something or we weren't listened to did I really do a good job did they like what I did or did they really value my contribution and we think about that you know, we think a lot about that it's like the spin cycle in the washing machine right the, you first you put the clothes in you soak it and the clothing you put the soap in and then Okay, you go. It kind of runs around slowly, and then that gets all the dirt out. But then, after a while, well, the it's moving slowly. But then the spin cycle sucks out all the water, drains out all the water, so the thing spins around. Well, you obviously have seen this, and uh, the cylinder spins and spins and spins and sucks out all the. All the water, and that—that's what our imagination can be like. You know, we our thoughts turn around all our activities, and and we're stuck in the spin cycle, and we don't slow down. Could happen. Our thoughts spin and spin, sucking out good aspirations, sucking out the moments that we could pray for others. The silence, you know, the the purifying grace of, of baptism. So maybe we could ask our Lord to help us identify when we're in the spin cycle. Unplug the machine. Well, call the pro to fix it if that's necessary. And hear the words of the Divine Master who says, 
If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? Well, that's pretty clear and compelling evidence of what we are invited to do. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And maybe the people at that time didn't know what it meant to follow your cross, but to take up your cross, but they, they certainly came to understand by seeing his example. It really supposes that there is already a default system deeply engraved in us somewhere that we have to weed out of our life. And some people do realize that and they start doing it. They, they start to weed out or pick up signs of selfishness. And uh, others don't even realize that they have to work on this. They don't realize. They don't pick up on this. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of possibilities, but, you know, that tendency to be self-centered is always within us. And that's why, you know, to neutralize that tendency, we need humility, we need to die to ourselves, and uh, ask uh, our Lord for this grace. Remember that, that point uh, in uh, Furrow, number 739, uh, about our father describes quite um, graphically about the person who thinks they're very good, they're not doing bad stuff, they're, but ultimately they're still somehow in the spin cycle. In other words, they turn around themselves. So you, you remember this point, he says, uh, you fulfill a demanding plan of life, you rise early, you pray, you frequent the sacraments, you work or study a lot, you're sober and mortified, but you are aware that something is missing. Consider this in your conversation with God, since holiness, or the struggle to achieve it, is the fullness of charity. You must look again at your love of God and your love of others for His sake. Then you may discover, hidden in your soul, great defects that you have not even been fighting against. You're not being a good son or a good daughter, a good brother or sister, a good companion, a good friend, a good colleague. And that, since you love your holiness in a disordered manner, you are envious. So, you know, we want our holiness in a disordered manner. We become envious. And he says, you quote, sacrifice yourself in many small personal details. And so you are attached to yourself, to your own person. And deep down, you do not live for God or for others, but only for yourself. I mean, that's like, there he just sticks the knife right there. You know, we live only for our, ourselves. It may seem like a harsh point, but our, our father does suggest that this person kind of, did discover these little pathologies in their soul after some time. Like it took some time to reflect on these as though ultimately it was our Lord guiding them and, and, and giving them light, was open to His grace and, uh, and 
came to relish that he was not a good brother or, or a good sister, she was not a good sister or, or a good companion or a good colleague, as he says. But God clearly gave them some light. And one senses in that person a sense of contrition for all these failures. And that contrition, well, that, that obviously brings great humility, real humility and real change. So you can say that thanks to this person's life of piety, this person that the, our father, obviously without mentioning who this is, but I imagine this would have been a real person, but you know, the, the, the thanks to that person's life of prayer, their piety, they became aware that the biggest obstacle is pride uh, and uh, that, uh, that they have this disordered love of self, this lack of yeah, true love. So let's ask uh, for this so that we pick up signs of self-centeredness you know all this sometimes described as narcissism or you know and uh, and find ways to be more generous to pick up our cross and you know with the divine friend with our lord the blessed trinity dwelling in us through grace because it's not possible to follow our lord without renouncing the self that's So we want to follow you, Lord, but we want to renounce ourselves. And as a result, the result is not that we will be unhappy, that we'll be deeply happy eh? and deeply effective. Our Blessed Mother will help us through. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.